In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 8, perhaps you could hold your thumb in John and turn to Mark chapter 8. There is an interesting thing that occurs as Jesus is walking along with his disciples. They are in the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is a beautiful area. One of the highlights, really, of going to Israel is to go to the sites that, that actually are historical in the sense that they actually happened. You see them on the pages of the Bible, but that you can actually go to a place where something tremendously significant occurred. And, uh, of course, there is the thrill of getting to the River Jordan because that's a popular spot on the pages of the Bible. And when you hear that you're going to go to the, the actual place where the Jordan River begins, where it flows from the base of Mount Hermon, that's a thrilling moment on your tour. But to me, an even greater thrill is that when you get to the area of Caesarea Philippi, you're reminded that one of the most important moments in the time of the discipling of the apostles occurred right here in this area of Caesarea Philippi. So here you are, the Mount Hermon literally looms almost right up out of nowhere, out of the bases flowing the River Jordan. It's nice and clean and clear right there. Changes later on down the way. You look around at all the trees and you sit there and you realize that this is the place where Jesus actually said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? And to stop and to ponder the answers and the conclusions that were made in that discussion are so tremendous. And that statement, who do men say that I am, is still such a challenging one even to this day. Who do men say that Jesus Christ is? Who are they saying that he is in these days? There are so many answers to that question. The Christian science people say that Jesus is the human man and Christ is the divine idea. The spiritists claim that Jesus Christ himself was nothing more than a medium of high order, that he was not divine and that he is now simply an advanced spirit in the sixth realm, whatever that is. The Jehovah Witnesses are clear to say that he is not Jehovah God and that Michael the archangel is no other than the only begotten Son of God now called Jesus Christ. They believe he's Michael the archangel. The Mormons believe that he is the spirit brother of none other than Lucifer. Those of Eastern mysticism claim that Jesus is one in a long line of exalted masters men who had developed their touch with the inner eye and the cosmos to the extent that they became, quote, divine. So they put his picture up next to Swami Prabhavananda Yogananda and next to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi of, you know, the Beatles' tutelage fame. And uh, <laughs> right up there with Buddha and other exalted masters. Jesus is so much more than any of those things. Jesus Christ is God. In answer to his question, Peter at Caesarea Philippi said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Speaking of his deity, which is so very important to understand. You might be one of those people who still thinks in these terms, well, wait, is it really important to believe Jesus is God? I mean, after all, isn't it just important to believe that he wants to forgive you of, of your sins? And if you will just believe that, isn't that all it takes? I have to tell you, if you think that way, that is not all it takes. If you want your sins forgiven, you must come believing in his deity or your sins will not be forgiven. Nothing could be more important than to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way, it is not possible to deny the deity of Jesus Christ and go to heaven. You may call yourself a Christian, you may come to church, but if you don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, you are not on your way to heaven. You will never see the pearly gates of heaven. And they are big, giant pearls, whole pearls 
like you've never seen before because you've never been there. But you will never see the inside of those pearly gates unless you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. So if you think you can just be forgiven, kind of, quote, generally love God and that you're going to go to heaven, you misunderstand the fact that you are intending to stand before God without an advocate for your sin, without a counselor before you as you stand before the judge and are tried for all of your guilt and without any plea for mercy. It all revolves around the deity of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. You're not going to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. That's the declaration of the scriptures. That is the declaration of the passage in front of us. This passage is one of profound revelation. Someone has well said that after reading the doctrine of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle... We tend to feel that the specific difference between their words and Christ's is the difference between an investigation and a major revelation. You see, on his own, man is just searching for answers. He lives in a world of speculation and endless searching and reasoning, and certainly that's what Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and others were all about. But when you come to listen to Jesus Christ, you're not talking about inquiry. You're not talking about investigation. You're talking about pure, unadulterated revelation from God Himself, from the lips of God Himself. And so we come to this passage, which is just that. It is an incredible revelation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to begin with John 17 and read down through to verse... Let's read to verse 30. Jesus answered them, that is the religious leaders, the Jews. They're upset with him, remember, because he's healed this lame man on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel." For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in Him who has sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Think of that one, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. What a statement. And even more remarkable this, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him all authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing, as I hear I judge. And my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. These are absolutely monumental claims. Get the picture. Here are these erudite, polished, all dressed up in their religious garbs, these religious leaders, scholars of the finest rabbinical schools. They're proud, they're arrogant, they're smug, they're legalistic. And they're staring at this peasant rabbi who's wearing a peasant outfit, a peasant robe. They know that he was born in very humble surroundings, in a cave no less, placed in a feed trough 
where they fed animals when he was an infant. He came growing up from the town of Nazareth. He is a nobody from a nowhere town, in their opinion. They have been watching him. They have seen him do some astounding things. But now he has done something more astounding than anything previously. He says all these things. So what a staggering picture it is to look at the things he says and to analyze the picture. Can you imagine how upset the religious leaders were? You understand then the words of C.S. Lewis. I want to read them to you, commenting on this type of thing with Jesus. He, he said, Jesus would tell the people their sins were forgiven. He says that makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. He went on to say this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. For example, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I, I simply cannot accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or he would, because he would be such a liar, he would be the devil of hell. He went on to say, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend us ever to think of him only in those terms. End quote. That's the idea. You see, here Jesus makes such staggering claims that he, he is either the greatest evilest liar, or he is a raving lunatic. You come to this section and you plunge in right over your head the second you start reading. I'm amazed at how overlooked this passage is. This is not as well known as, say, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it doesn't have the illustrious language of even the opening chapter of, of John, the Gospel of John, with words like logos and all these things like that. It doesn't have the color and the personal interaction of Jesus and the woman at the well. But this right here is one of the deepest, most profoundest sections in all of the entire Bible. And one of the most important teachings that Jesus Christ ever gave. Because it speaks so much of his deity, all of it. Now, I see seven different issues in here that speak of the deity of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about his works, how we see his deity in his works in his will, in his intelligence. I'm just going to fire him off. We're not going to get to all of them now anyway. But his intelligence, his sovereign rights, his divine honors, his imparting of life, his judicial power and authority, all of that is here. And all we're going to do this time is just barely get into the beginning of it. I've been reading this for weeks. I feel like when I was a kid and I had my first bit of nerve to get out of the shallow end in the pool. Remember that? You know, you kind of gurgle around in the shallow end and you learn how to kick and paddle and get bold and you dive underwater and then you get even bolder and open your eyes. But all the while, you can touch the bottom if you want. So now you know how to swim back and forth across and you can even swim underwater a little bit. And then comes that day when you go down to the deep end and you've got everybody there waiting just in case and you jump and you go in, you sink down way over your head and you have that moment of panic, you know? You start scratching for the surface and you gasp for air as you hit the top. I'll tell you, I'm in that scratching <laughs> syndrome way over my head as I come to study this with you today. It is just... It isn't even the first time you look at it. It's the more you read it, the deeper it gets. So we begin by looking at how Christ is manifesting his deity through his explanation of his works, how his works are completely in unity with the works of the Father. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered them, and he says, My Father has been working until now. 
And I have been working. That's because now they want to kill him because he's broken the Sabbath. So this is his answer. You couldn't have a deeper answer. Now that he said that, my father has been working until now and I have been working. We read, therefore, because of that, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but now said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you. Now he builds on that statement from verse 17 and verse 19. He builds on that. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you. In other words, listen up, truly, truly. Amen, amen is really what the Greek is saying. This is a very important thing I'm about to say. Much more important than normal. Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the father do... For whatever he does, that's what the son does. So here they're mad at him for breaking the Sabbath. And he responds by giving him this. Here's my reason for doing this on the Sabbath. Let me just tell it to you plainly. The reason I healed this man in spite of the fact that it's the Sabbath is that my father has been working until now and I'm working. It's just the most incredible statement and that's why... We're not going to get very far beyond it in this service. So out of this comes this plot of the Jews to kill him because he has healed the paralyzed man on the Sabbath. In the beginning, they were curious about Jesus and for a time, his healing aroused a great kind of popular enthusiasm around Galilee. But the farther he went, the more disturbing his ministry was to the religious leaders and teachers. For this reason, he refused to be bound by their religious ideas. He insisted on healing sick people and doing it on the Sabbath because he believed that healing people did not profane the Sabbath but actually honored it. It was because it was established by God for rest and the relief of human beings that there even was a Sabbath. And so he believed healing on the Sabbath actually honored God's intention of the Sabbath. For example, turn in the Bible. Hold your finger here and turn in your Bible to Luke, to chapter 6, to verse 6. Here we have a healing on the Sabbath. What he does is he'll do a healing on the Sabbath and then he'll give this this argument as to why. So Luke 6, 6, it happened on another Sabbath, on another Sabbath also, that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Luke is the man of detail, being a doctor, of course he notices it's the right hand that's withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely, whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath. This is becoming a pattern. So they're anticipating this. Why? Not that they could rejoice in the healing, but that they might find an accusation against him, bent on evil. He knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Come over here. Then Jesus said to them, He gets the man positioned for his healing, and then he turns to the religious leaders before he does the healing. He says, Let me ask you a question. As if to say, I already know what's on your mind. Let me ask you a question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil or to save life or to destroy? In other words, how far are you going to carry your regulations that you've invented and attached to the law of Moses? How far are you going to carry these things on your Sabbath ritual? Can you do good on the Sabbath? Could you save a life if you had to? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, I can just see the silence, can't you, that follows the question? He just stops and starts staring at them, right through the crowd, looking at them, reading each one of their minds, and moving around. And when he's all done, he turns to the man and he says, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. A creative act, by the way. And they were all... Incredibly, not blessed. They were all filled with rage. 
Isn't it amazing how hard a man's heart can be from sin to stand in the face of a miraculous work of God and to ignore that work of mercy, which is a creative act, a divine work, and to be filled only with rage because he had broken one of their rules. And they were filled with rage and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The first thing they did was they said, huddle up. And they ran outside and they had a meeting. How are we going to kill this man? This thing about the healing, it's going on and on on the Sabbath. So he's always giving this argument. Another place here, he says, is it okay to do good? Could you save a life? I mean, what is with you guys in this Sabbath thing? Another place he said, would it be all right if your animal falls in a ditch on the Sabbath? Don't you take him out? Didn't David eat the showbread when it was an emergency on the Sabbath? Don't the priests, even some of them, have to work on the Sabbath? Don't you understand the heart of God with the Sabbath? So he always has an argument when he does the healing. But in this particular case, because he's wanting to reveal his deity in detail, he takes them to the highest argument of all. He leads them to the highest ground of all, and he takes the example of the Father Working. Why have I healed this man on the Sabbath? Because the Father is working. And when the Father is working, I work. And so now they want to kill him, not just because he healed a man on the Sabbath day, but because he has claimed himself to be equal to God. Look at verse 17 in John 5. You can go back there. Here is his claim to be equal with God. Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, there's a, something very interesting here. When he said, my father, he meant much more than you or I would mean. You might say, oh, God is my father, and I'm so blessed to be a Christian. That means something to you. Here, when he said, my father, he said something along the lines, if you translate it literally, like this. He said, my own particular father, or God, who is my father in a unique and special way, as opposed to other men. That's what he was saying. My own particular father would be a good literal translation. That was his response. My own particular father has been working until now, and I have been working. The Jews, when they heard him say, my own particular father, immediately understood he was using a terminology that consequently implied his entire equality with God. That's what they heard, because that's what he was saying. I find that fascinating. They begin to plot their murder of him in uh, the passage here, verse 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him not only because he broke the Sabbath, but because he said God was his father, making himself equal with God. I find it fascinating that that was the conclusion of his enemies that he was claiming to be God. This to me is a strong answer, if not the final one, to the critics that would say Jesus never claimed to be God. You talk to the person who says, Oh, well, he was a good prophet. He was a good teacher. I like Jesus. He was such a good man. Like that one movie with the Hawaiian woman in it who said, That nice Jesus. He was such a good little man. So much full of aloha. <laughs> I think that's one of the funniest lines of, in any movie I've ever seen. For those people that would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. It's funny that here his enemies knew that he was claiming to be God. There was absolutely no doubt in their minds. See, these are not his supporters saying, hey, everybody, you have to believe he really is saying he's God. These are the people that hate him. They know that he's saying he's God. So it is a very strong answer to those critics who say that he never claimed to be God. For example, turn a few pages to the right in your Bible to John chapter 10 to verse 31. And this business of trying to kill him, it goes on and on. 
throughout his life. Here we read in John 10:31, then the Jews took up stones, notice, again to stone him. And Jesus answered them and he said, look, many good works I have shown you from my father, for which of those works are you now going to stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we don't stone you. But this is crystal clear, for blasphemy. Because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus claimed to be God and his enemies were very, very clear about it. So go back to John 5. He has claimed to be equal with God. There's a wonderful, warm thought here in the midst of all this I want to bring out before we move on. In John 17, Jesus answered them and he said, My Father, my Father. Today we more or less, I think, take it for granted that God is to be spoken of as Father. And we're familiar with so much of the teaching of the Lord's Prayer and all that we are those that take it for granted to speak of God as Father. But the Jews only rarely spoke of God in that time as Father. So Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts doing something that's unprecedented. He goes around all the time referring to God as my Father. If the Jews ever used the term Father and addressed it to Jehovah God, it was always extremely carefully and at most they would say our Father but they would attach other reverences to it because they knew that though they had a covenant relationship with God, that still they had to keep their distance. And that is all fleshed out in the high priest going in once a year to the Holy of Holies. No one else can go in that far. No one can stand in the presence of God like that. One false move in the presence of God and God would kill the man. All of that sent out repercussions to the people. So if they ever addressed God as Father, it was from a distance. Jesus comes in now and goes public with his ministry and everywhere he goes he's talking my father, my father, my father, unprecedented. Here he says my father. And this is such a wonderful thing because this is the kind of intimacy he has come to bring to you and I. We now take it for granted but what I want to show you here is this. Jesus uses the term my father and John really brings that out more than anyone else. For example, the word, just the word father in the gospel of John is found 137 times and 122 of those times it refers to God. Why is that important? Well, because it is by far and away the most frequent use of the term in one section of the New Testament. Matthew comes in with the second to that with only 64 examples of Father. In all of the Pauline epistles together, Father is only found 63 times. And all of that is to say this, it is John more than anyone else who cultivates this idea in his writing of God as our Father. It is to John as our brother, who we will see in heaven, that we owe our warmth and familiarity in our understanding of God as our Father more than any of the other writers in the New Testament. Our familiarity with God as Father comes from the book of John. And I think that's one of the reasons, if not even articulated, in our thinking, besides the fact that the Gospel's written to reveal Jesus as God, it's one of the reasons that we point new believers to the Gospel of John because there is a warmth about it that is so important to the new believer to know that God is their Father. And so my Father. I didn't want to pass by without working that out a little bit. So the Jews have this plan to kill him because he has healed a man on the Sabbath and he has made himself equal with God. Now, let's talk about this proclamation of Jesus as being one with the Father in his work. And I want to take our time with this now and work through some of these fascinating statements. J.C. Ryle, at this point in his commentary, said this, and I want to pass it on to you. He said, there are few chapters in the Bible 
perhaps where we feel our own shallowness of understanding so thoroughly and discover so completely the insufficiency of all human language to express the deep things of God. He said, men are often saying that they want explanations of the mysteries of the Christian faith, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the person of Christ, and all the like. He said, but let them just observe. When we do find a passage full of explanatory statements on a deep subject, how much there is that we have no line to fathom and literally no mind to take in. I want more light, says a proud man. So God gives him his desire in this chapter and he lifts up the veil just a little. But behold, we are dazzled by the very light we wanted and we find we do not have eyes to take it in. This is profound teaching Jesus gives us here. He says, My Father has been working until now. If you have an NIV Bible, it says, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. Do you realize what Jesus did? They're mad because He did a healing on the Sabbath. His response is, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. What does that mean? My Father has been working. Why would you give us that as an answer? Do you have a clue? My Father has been working until now. Do you realize what He's doing? In one sweep, He takes them all the way back to the creation, the very beginning of time, in one sweep. From where they are to the beginning of time and back to where they are in one sweep. My Father has been working, been, from the beginning of time, the beginning of the creation, when He was working in the creation, He's been working from then until now. That's the thought. Somebody is thinking, well, wait, I know my Bible. The Bible says that he rested after creation. So how could Jesus say he's been working from the beginning until now? When the Bible says, I know it, I know my Bible, it says he rested. Yes. If you know your Bible, it does say that he rested. In Genesis 2.2, it says, On the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, here is God resting or ceasing from the work of creation. He does this as a divine example to man. A divine example to man. Not because he needed rest. I mean, surely you don't assume that after seven days of creating the heavens and the universe, that God sat back and went, Phew! Wow! Haven't done anything that hard in ages. You see, Isaiah forty twenty eight says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints or is weary? He never gets tired. When God does the work, when He expends energy, He doesn't get tired from it. It's just another expenditure of energy which is infinite. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because He rested from all His work which God had created and made. You see, God rested, made it known to man as an example, set aside the seventh day, hallowed it, made it holy. Your Bible might say that. Why? So that man, this was the outgrowth of it, that man would take one day in seven to rest. Man, you see, when he works for six days, gets tired. If he continues to work and work and work and never take a day off, he gets tired and he becomes counterproductive. So God looking out for man, as an example, rests after six days that man would take one day and seven off and, don't miss it, contemplate his relationship with God. That's what the Sabbath is all about. Now Jesus then, understanding that, 
comes back with his answer to these religious leaders who are upset because he's upset their man-made rules about the Sabbath. And he answers, he says, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. What does he mean? He means this. Though the Bible says God rested from his creative act, God really has never stopped working since the creation. Do you understand that? There has never been a time since the creation when God has not been working. God rested from the acts of creation because that was finished. So he rested from that, but at the same time, he continued to work. So that Jesus says he's been working right up until now. You see, there might not be any more creating, but unless there was the sustaining of God of what he had created, it would all fall apart. So God has been working. One writer said, God never ceases to work. Just as it is the property of fire to burn and of snow to be cold, so it is the property of God to work. God is always at work. Let me give you an example. I think of this because we're talking about creation. Jesus is referring to creation. God has been working. What has he been doing since creation? He rested from creating it. What's he been doing in terms of really holding it all together? If you take even a cursory examination of the universe, I don't know if any of you have ever had a telescope, looked out your window to see if you could find the rings around Saturn or look at the craters on the moon, but I used to do all of that when I was a kid. Someday I hope to do it again as an adult, but I need to buy a telescope. And then find the time, rest one day and seven to take it, I guess. But I love to study the universe. Because it so speaks of God. The Bible says, look up and behold, and you'll get a message from God. That's why I like to study it. But even a cursory study of our universe and our solar system, which is a part of the universe, will render fascinating conclusions that go back to what Jesus is saying. For example, our solar system consists of how many planets? (laughs) Been a long time since grammar school, hasn't it? Nine planets in the solar system class. Second question, what planet do we live on? Here's a hint, Earth. Our solar system consists of nine planets. Ours is Earth. They are revolving around the sun, basically with the exception of some of the outer edge ones. They're revolving around the sun in the same plane. So they're revolving around the sun in the same plane. That means they stay on course, kind of even with each other, level on the same plane, with the exception of a few which are tilted up a little bit in their plane. But they continue year after year, eon after eon, to revolve west to east. They're going in the same direction on the same plane, all nine, and they're revolving around the sun. You become fascinated as you realize that here's the planets revolving around the sun. Then some of the planets have moons. So that we know we have a moon, right? What do we call that class? The moon. So that there are these satellites around the planets called moons. In our terminology, we have a moon and it revolves around as a satellite around the earth, which is revolving around the sun and spinning all the while it's revolving at a thousand miles an hour. Just thought I'd throw that in. So here's everything revolving. Earth spinning, moving around the sun, moon, moving around the earth, planets moving around the sun together. So that you begin to look at this and you you realize this is quite an awesome thing, you know. It keeps going on all the time, day after day. Then you begin to look at it further and you find out that this whole solar system revolving is just one little tiny part of the Milky Way galaxy. That's a something in outer space for those of you that didn't get beyond the candy bar aspect of it. The Milky Way galaxy is even in all of its massiveness, it is revolving and orbiting. So here's our little solar system, everything spinning, revolving in there. It's in the Milky Way galaxy and it's revolving. Milky Way galaxy is just one of other countless, countless galaxies that are out there. I came across a picture today of the spiral galaxy M100. 
It's located between 35 million and 80 million light years from Earth. That's a long way, isn't it? Light travels how fast? 186,000 miles. See, see it's amazing. Once it starts working, the things that it'll kick back at you. So 35 million and 80 million light years from Earth, the Hubble Space Telescope took a picture of this galaxy, and it's a spiral thing. It is revolving. So here is all of this movement in the universe, and you see the expanse of it. You talk in terms of millions and billions of light years, and these huge galaxies, and all these stars, and everything, and all this energy. If you go all the way down to the very heart of it all, you come to the atom. And inside the atom, there are, you know this, the proton-neutron thing. There are the positive forces that repel. Ever ask yourself just exactly how much energy God has been working even till now? Jesus said, my father has been working. Want to know some of the stuff he's been doing? Have you ever wondered how much energy he's been putting into the work he's been doing? Here's this vast universe. Way down at the heart of an atom, which is so small compared to the universe, the inside of the atom, which is the heart of everything, are these positive forces that should repel. Something's holding those forces together so that the atom, according to other laws of nature, doesn't explode. Well, scientists, you know, call that atomic glue. What happened when scientists split only, in the midst of our vast universe, only one atom? When they dropped the atom bomb on Hiroshima, Hiroshima, what happened? It leveled the entire place sent up a cloud of nuclear dust and smoke that polluted the atmosphere for years. One atom split did that. Now, just think for a minute. Jesus said, my father has been working till now. Just think for a minute. If he quit expending that energy that's been holding those protons and neutrons together in each little atom and throughout the entire universe, he just let it all go. You know what would happen? You'd have a big bang. And I mean bigger than the Big Bang they've been talking about. You know what's behind all this? What is behind all this sustaining work of God? My Father has been working until now. You know what's behind it all? The mercy of God. The mercy of God. You see, the Bible tells us in Matthew 5.45, Jesus said that God the Father makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his reign on the just and the unjust. You know what that is to say? My father orders the universe. He's working constantly ordering the universe in such a way that when you get up in the morning, the sun is there for you. And the sun is there beating down on the planet so that the crops grow. He orders the universe in such a way that it stays orderly, in such a way that the wind patterns move just right. And as the sun beats down on the earth and the water evaporates up out of the ocean and the salt stays down on the ocean to keep the water pure for you, he brings the rain over your area and drops it down so it waters your crops and you can eat and you can grow and you can drink and you can live. Why? So that you have another opportunity to be saved from your sins and spend eternity in heaven with God, you have another opportunity to believe that God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. Why does He continue to have the sunrise on the evil and the good? Because He's merciful so that He holds the whole thing together to the end that men might be saved. That one more man, one more woman, one more child might come to know God through His blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says... My Father has been working until now. And that sweeps in everything we've just talked about. It is all bound up in this, in this discussion with these men who want to kill him, because he said, My Father has been working until now. And then he said, he tacked this part on, And I have been working. Now that is a pretty heavy thing to say in light of everything we've just discussed. Sweep in everything we've just discussed and attach it to this phrase, I have been working. And then go to Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1.16 in your Bible. Hold your thumb in John. Colossians 
My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Paul gives us a great commentary on that statement of Christ, and I have been working. You want to know what he's been doing? Well, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, that are in the heaven, that are on the earth, visible, invisible, outward, inward, down to the atom, everything, protons, neutrons, into the spiritual, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, out into the governments of men, everything. All things were created through him and for him. Statement of deity, he is before all these things. Statement of a continuing work from creation, in him all these things consist. The Greek is sunistao, it can be translated to band together. All things are held together by him. So, Jesus, go back to John 5. There's Paul's commentary on what Jesus is saying over here. He is saying he does exactly what God the Father does. God the Father created. He created. He's before all things as God the Father. In him all things consist. And in John 5:19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is saying, everything God the Father has been doing, I have been doing. Let's bring it back down to the context. These men mad that he's done this healing on the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, God the Father has been working in acts of mercy ever since the creation because it was only shortly after the creation of man that man fell into sin. In an act of mercy, God has kept all of creation together, working, bringing the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, the rain to fall on them. He's been working in mercy every day of the week. That's his point. Now you're mad that in an act of mercy I've healed this man. You want to know why I've done it? Because my father works every day of the week in acts of mercy. My father chose to have this man healed. Now I am so united with my father, we are so inseparably one that if the father chooses to do an act of mercy, I do it. I cannot do otherwise. You see how he says that? He says, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. Now pay close attention here. This is not a statement of Jesus saying, I'm in one sense just a human being, and as a human being I can't do anything. I'm trusting God for everything. I left my throne in glory. I set aside my prerogatives of deity to become a human being. As a human being I can't do anything. He's not saying that. Now that might be addressed somewhere else, but he's not saying that here. What he is saying here is this. The Son can do nothing of Himself. What He is saying is, I have no other will except the Father's will. I have no will that's separate from the Father's will. Now that has, that has endless application for your own life. I have no other will except the Father's will. But back to the point. The Son can do nothing of Himself. Why? Because He is so essentially one with God as God that there is no other will. There is nothing else He can do. Because there's nothing else beyond that with Him except the Father's will. But what He sees the Father do, for whatever He does, the Son does in like manner. He wanted the man healed on the Sabbath. I've healed him. I'm God. God wanted him healed. Because I'm God, he's healed. That's why a healing has occurred on the Sabbath, because the Father works every day of the week, even on the Sabbath, doing acts of necessity and mercy. So you have a healed man here today, because I'm God. And that's the message. That's the message. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. And that is not to say that he does similar things or that he copies certain kinds of things that the Father does, but that he does the exact same thing. It is to say the Father and the Son are at work together. It is to say what the Son is doing, the Father is doing. What the Father is doing, the Son is doing. Lightfoot brings it out this way. He says the union here, therefore, is absolute. It is not, for instance, as though the Son reveals the Father in certain particular ways or in certain remarkable actions. Rather, no moment of His life, no action of His, 
is but the expression of the life and the action of the Father. So that Jesus stands here as a merciful, miracle-working Savior, and he declares that he is God. He declares that every move the Father makes, he makes, because he is inseparably fused with the Father. And now I'm sure you're beginning to realize how deep into it we're getting, because now we're deep into the relationship of the Trinity. We could easily sweep in the Holy Spirit here, and the Holy Spirit could say, the Father has been working, the Son has been working, and I have been working. And then we could show how the Holy Spirit was at work in creation. We could show how the Spirit is at work in holding all things together. We're deep into a discussion, really, of the Trinity of God. And Jesus is saying, I am God. That is what He is saying. And the thrill of it all is He's only just starting to say it. And we have so much more to study on what he has to say about his deity, make no mistake about it, this Christ, this Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth who died on a cross 2,000 years ago, he's none other than very God of very God. And he alone can save you. And if you seek to come any other way, you will not have your sins forgiven and you will spend eternity in exile from God because God himself has come to take you personally there. And if you reject that personal offer, there is no other way in for you. So trust Jesus with your eternity, with your life, and with your sin, and find salvation in Him. He wants to give it to you, but you must come and receive it from Him. Well, let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you again so much for your word. I pray, God, that these things would echo in our heads and that the echo would continue and the truths would reverberate and that the light would go down deeper and deeper into our hearts in a lasting way. Lord Jesus, as we study your deity, may our appreciation of you rise. May our gratitude for you rise. And may our understanding of you lend a boldness to the witness that we bring to the world in which we live. May we never be intimidated by those who would cleverly try to tell us Jesus never claimed to be God. He's only one teacher, one way to heaven, one spoke that leads to the hub of the wheel with so many others. Free us with the truth, the truth that makes us free to stand and boldly proclaim the narrow way to heaven. The only way to heaven is Jesus Christ. And we will give you all the glory as we see men and women and boys and girls find their way into the kingdom through Jesus Christ alone. For we ask it in his name. Amen.